Welcome to Theology on Tap. Today's special guest is actually my colleague for this podcast, Derek Sessom. Co-host in crime. How you doing? Oh man, we're doing awesome. Uh, for our beer of the week, we've got Francis Garner from nice. the oldest brewery known to man in Munich. It's a nice wheat beer, uh, but imported from St. Louis, so we've got our grimy American paws all over <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's important that uh, we announce this. This is in, in accordance with the Bavarian purity law of 1516. So Sounds we are important. Keeping it German. Yes, we are. Yes. So, what made you go into psychology? Um, it's a long story. Uh, I, think, I think what it was was uh, after such a long time of searching, trying to find um, a deeper sense of purpose in a lot of different things and really kind of coming up empty in so many of them, I found myself in a place that was that was um, really transformational and um, deeply fulfilling for me. So it was... After so many years of, you know, just kind of frustration and listlessness as a young adult, um, really kind of like 18 through 21, I didn't have a clue and was really biding time. Um, and, you know, was almost kind of counting my days in a sense, just because I was like, there's not anything. But I found myself working at a um, summer camp. And through that experience, um, I found myself, you know, not really finding any type of connection or um, interaction with the campers themselves, which is ironic because that was our primary responsibility was to like, you know, interact with the campers. <laughs> but um, my my driving force and really got what got me up in the morning and kept me going was the kind of processing through the the hardships and struggles of you know, my coworkers and other people that were there and really allowing a space for them to um, give, I guess, give themselves permission to move forward. Because, I mean, that's what, that's what therapy is in so many different senses. Like, I'm not a magician, you know. Mateos calls me a witch doctor all the time, but I don't do anything that's magical. Really what my, my role is is to provide a constant reflective environment of support where somebody can um, find themselves in a place of, of epiphany. And through those epiphany come uh, transformation because they're given the, the space and support to do so. So I found myself in basically a, a, a layman sense doing something very similar with, um, you know, these other counselors and stuff like that, that, you know, were college kids. And I was like, this is great. I mean, the fact that it was a, a Christian camp too made it even more because it was like, it was very affirming to my faith, but it was also something that kind of drove me and it kind of defined my, my, my marching call mission statement or, or something else that, um, I have carried with me. And I, I think it's evolved a little bit, but I mean, essentially it's, I, I like and I want to be a positive healing force 
in somebody's life where they can be able to navigate and overcome their struggles in a means where they can eventually thrive in their life. Now, I have to always go back to what my father said, and I think it's so true, especially in my current position, um, which is, you know, Jesus is the one that ultimately heals. But I count myself very privileged and um, fortunate to be in a space where I can elicit that in a small degree and point them back to the true light. And especially where I'm working now, which is a, it's a Christian um, nonprofit that does, that does counseling and it's a residential. There's something, there's something very powerful and uplifting for me to be able to lead a process group where, we, where people are talking about their deepest traumas, talking, to their, talking about their deepest pains, and begin and end that group in prayer. It's wild. And I, I, don't, think I, would, I don't think I would want to be anywhere else. Wow. Amazing. That's why uh, you are perfect to answer these questions. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly imperfect. <laughs> so uh, for this next question, uh, I wanted to talk about, I actually wanted to ask a very important question that I've received a lot from people that are non-Christian. Yeah. Ask me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, is suicide a sin? Yeah. But, but before we answer that, I want to make sure we preface it because this is a very heavy topic. Yep. Um, and it's very important that we stress that you know there is a suicide hotline out there for anyone who's struggling. It's very important that we emphasize that we care deeply about people that are wrestling with suicide right. and that are wrestling with depression because I know I wrestle with depression from time to time. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe you do too, Oh yeah, Derek. Um, so yeah, we've we've been in a very similar boats, and we want to stress. We probably can't emphasize it enough how much we care about people that are going through issues and that are struggling and feeling like they're drowning mm-hmm. and the emotional weight, um, and and basically feel so much despair that they don't they don't think there's a way out except for killing themselves. Right. So I don't want to take this topic lightly. Right. So Derek, with that prefaced. Is suicide a sin? Yeah, I like how you introduced that. I think it's super important because um, it, it's kind of like a twofold thing, right? So one, it's something that people legitimately want to ask, but it is so delicate to approach that, you know, I, I think most people don't even want to come close because it it can, I think like you like you said, it can come off as insensitive or, you know, it feels like it's maybe missing the mark. Um, or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I, I kind of went back and forth on this one. I mean, I, I think like the, the, the biggest go-to in the Bible, because there's like a few, ep- few, uh, examples of suicide in the Bible, right? So like the, the biggest one that most people go to is Judas, right? Um, and certainly Judas towards the end of his life was not painted in any type of, you know, good color at all it was you know he's you know defiled this or cursed that or you know you know the what you might be able to refresh me on that but it's like the description of his last seconds is that he's on this field and that field will be what is it something to akin is cursed to all time yeah yeah basically um however like if you think about it um 
suicide from like the Old Testament point of view didn't really get a whole lot of attention as far as, you know, the uh, weight of their action, right? So like I think with Judas, and feel free to feel free to jump in, but I feel with Judas there was already so much going on with the fact that he he betrayed Christ, right? Yes. So like when you look at there, there's like a couple of kings in the Old Testament. There's um, like arguably, I think there was like a, a shield bearer or sword bearer or something like that. But I think that's more just akin to called a service than it is actual suicide. Like that person was so loyal to their king that it was completely understandable that they might throw themselves and sacrifice themselves for their king as opposed to them purposefully killing themselves in the name of, you know, honor or what have you. And that's usually what you kind of see in the Old Testament is um, it would be better for me to die by my own hand than by X. You know, I can't remember the name of the guy, but there's one was like better for me to die, better for you to take myself out than to be killed by a woman. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a, another one. Um, Sex is much. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, different times, different places. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but I, th- I think, I think it's hard to, uh, I'm sorry. That reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Right. You get, I am no man. Right, yeah. So you get Ewan, yeah. 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 And then the, the witch king goes down and <laughs> yeah, everybody I'm celebrates. Stupid. No, man. <laughs> Lord of the Rings it up. Um, so, uh, like, I want to, I want to, like, I want to approach it pragmatically, but um, I want to, I want to end it up in a space that leaves uh, hope because I think that's the ultimate goal whenever you even approach suicide is that you you leave some semblance of hope because right? I think I think so often when people find themselves in that space or have um, maybe have a loved one who's gone to that space the <coughs> the absence of hope is so palpable right so to answer to answer the in in, in kind of a pragmatic way um, or maybe I guess in a theological way uh, I think it would be something to where what is the action of suicide, right? So it would be for one to take one's own life. Yes, right. So just just looking at it as, as formulaic as you can, right, if you were to put it on an algebraic equation um, and try to do it in such a way to where we can take a step away from maybe anyone's personal, um, you know, struggle or anything like that and we're just looking at the action itself i mean i would i would be under the ken to say yes but i wouldn't say that it would be the end all be all because i think a lot of times suicide is seen as like the uh, like almost a second unforgivable sin right so you have blasphemy and then a lot of people um would go suicide would be up there too. Yeah, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and then right. that see that's where that's where I get tricky because <clears throat> I don't I don't get tricky, but it gets tricky cuz on one hand, I'm like from experiencing, you know, friends and family members that mm-hmm. have had suicidal thoughts uh, from my perspective, which in some cases is very ignorant because I've never experienced what they've experienced. Sure. 
it comes off almost um, slightly arrogant to me because I feel like, and this is just how I felt in the moment, like you're you're disregarding my feelings as your friend slash family member. Right. Um, and also all the other friends slash family members that you have. And then you're playing God with your life. Yeah. And ending it. But yeah. on the other hand, you know, I have to come down from that because in, in some space it's like at one point I was almost grieving because I could just I could just feel it was about to happen. Right. It never did. But that's how like that's how the like I was angry. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, those people don't 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 feel arrogance right. about it at all. They have no way out, at least in their mind. Mm-hmm. And um, they want to escape that despair. And to be honest, like whenever I'm talking about sin, as we mentioned, it it's almost an archery term, mm-hmm. missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, sin is not necessarily defined by one significant action. Right. It's literally the result of the first Adam falling yeah. and causing the rest of humanity to be, you know, slaves to sin. Right. It's it's just the result of the fallen world. People are dead in their trespasses and their sin. Somebody who's not a Christian and is wrestling with suicide is literally wrestling, trying to wrestle their carnal man with a with a dead spirit inside because yeah. they're spiritually dead. And that is just the re- that is the ro- result of sin and death and decay entering the world and, you know, oppressing us intrinsically with our emotions and feelings because yeah. it's our carnal man inside. Yeah. And I, I like, so going back to that definition of missing the mark, um, uh, I, I like, I like where you went. So you, you approached it from a, like a bystander, um, like maybe like a close family member or friend or something like that looking from the outside in and how quick it is to, um, <clears throat> go to a place of, go to a place of, you know, anger or miss, you know, just not understanding or, or to take it personally because, you know, why, why couldn't they think of me before they did that? Did, did they have, was there even a thought of how much hurt they were going to cause everybody else? And I, I think you nailed it on the head where the, the answer is oftentimes, if not most or all times, no. It's, it is seen, it is, it is seen and it is a, um, viable, perceivable, perceivably a viable option to escape pain. Yeah. So especially when we're looking at somebody wrestling with their flesh and trying to, um, you know, reconcile or, or get caught up in their own, um, sinful nature. And I think the, I think another tricky thing is, and you can almost add this to, you know, qualify is that in this, I like just removing the pejoratives, you know, explain pejoratives. So like the, the inherent negative connotations, right? So like, um, missing the mark doesn't inherently jump to, what a lot of people would see sin as. Because, I mean, for a lot of people, sin would say, you know, oh, that's quintessential wickedness. Yeah, cultural Christianity, yeah. it's the Jerry Falwell yeah. moral majority. Yes. Anything that's not the godly moral standard is a sin by yeah, action. So evil, wicked, bad, you know, any of those. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, 
in the in the grand scheme of things, um, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I'll, I'll grant that, but that still doesn't mean that um, living in a fallen world, um, you can't always trace the suffering back to one's own failing. And I think that that can be important when it comes to somebody's struggle with deep depression or suicide. Yeah, me too. Because I, I think it's the the one's own sense of self-rejection and shame, like that is that's prime time. That that's how you that that's how you kind of begin the spiral downward to get there. So, really, I I can I can understand the the desire to answer that question because I think it's like so many other things that we. Um, don't understand but want an answer to. Yeah. But ultimately, and I, I feel like I have to go back to this, you know, ultimately, you know, God is the judge and, and God is love. So. That's why I'm, I'm very hesitant to say, uh, well, the, Bi- the Bible doesn't explicitly say that suicide is an unforgivable sin. The only one that comes to my mind that's an unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. So that's where that's where I would that would that's where I'd make the distinguish. So I would I I would qualify it if you had to. I would say it would be, you know, perhaps a, a sinful act because you you know again looking at it, um, I, I guess pragmatically or theologically or whatever the the term would be. Um, you are let's say theologically for kicks and so let's say theologically so then i guess you are taking you are taking an action that would otherwise be something that was um uh i I guess god's ultimate decision right so when we are to live and to die and also the the i think just looking at suicide in itself like breaking that word down self-murder to to murder oneself yeah so and I think just using using that, even going further, I, I think it goes hand in hand with what Jesus said as far as where we find anger and hate. Because you know, people who find themselves in in the bed of suicide or, you know, are struggling in the pit where they're they their only way to escape their own sense of um, you know, doubt, rejection, failure, whatever it may be, their own self hatred. Yeah is to solve the problem themselves and to check out. Man, that's deep. Well, I think it's, so so I I think it's one of those things to where um, reintegrating something that's been lost in the church. So that question, that question in itself would be something to where um, it's, it's more like, it's more inquisitive than it would be condemning. Because if you really don't understand or if you really don't know what you're talking about, there you can only place so much blame for being insensitive. Right. So I, I want to I be able to say that. And, and of course, if any of our listeners, listeners are struggling with depression or um, suicide or, or anything like that, you know, of course there is more than, you know, enough support out there. I, you know, can't, um, I can't say that enough that there are people who care, um, not that I would probably be the one person talking to you, but I care. Um, I, of course, want you to th- be able to thrive in life and to, you know, see your purpose in Christ fulfilled through your life. Um, so there are 
tons of resources that you can go out um, and access. You know, there's a suicide hotline. There's so many different things. Um, but going back to it, it's something to where uh, the somewhere along the line when we started separating the spirit and the mind, well, let me back up a little bit because there's there's clear distinctions as far as how scripture describes the two. But I think as far as like putting them in, in um, elements to where they can almost contradict each other or they can't be really discussed in the same basket, um, it, it's very easy to start putting um, when putting any type of scientific discovery when it comes to the mind or psychology or anything like that in a, in a place where it's like, okay, well, this is just a part of a fallen part of ourselves. This is a part of something that is, you know, man-made philosophy that cannot be um, trusted or something like that. Essentially what I'm getting at is, you know, we need to start destigmatizing any form of approach to mental health back into the church because, you know, as the church... Um, and its inception blew up and, and grew so quickly because of its, you know, radicals, I- radical ideas of uh, serving the poor, um, granting mercy, you know, showing love to everyone. You know, the the least of those in those in that society. You know, of course, you can translate that to the continual. You know, you know, you have your homeless and everything else like that. But the the broken and the 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 hurt. You know, now it's something to where we, we have a term now, and it's, it's those that are struggling with, you know, mental illness. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be shrieking away from that. You know, we need to, we need to be able to embrace these people, and we need to be able to bring them back in um, to our fold and know that, you know, yeah, whatever might be going on, it might be overwhelming for me, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to give you the time of day because I know that, Jesus still loves you and I know he's bigger than everything and he can absolutely, you know, he can absolutely bless you and heal you and, you know, comfort you in your darkest day. That's, uh, I want to go back to the question of mental health in the church, but first I want to, I want you to establish a few things that you believe about God and how he interacts within the world. Um, what aspect of God is the most psychologically intimidating in uh, form say your answer and then maybe say an answer of someone who probably is battling depression right now. Mm-hmm. And then I want to know what aspect of God is the most free. Um, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't necessarily um, assume on somebody else uh, for my, I know for some of my own struggles and, um, just kind of thinking it without trying to go too meta. Uh, I think for me, what's intimidating the most is that uh, God's just the the internal nature of God, where you, of course, we look at that, you know, time and space and creation and the end times and all that, but really the entirety of that. So the fullest extent of the human condition already acknowledged, understood, and um, accepted. And it's something to where there is no space where you can doubt the love of God or 
doubt his justice or doubt anything else like that because he existed and exists and will exist through all of the things that we have ever done and all of the all of the wrongs we may have done all of you know anything that we might have done to ourselves or anybody else and and to me to me that can be um, awe-inspiring but it can also be can also be intimidating in a certain sense because it's something to where um, there's nowhere to hide there's there's no space to be like okay this part of me I can keep secret you know this this aspect of who I am I can I can remain retain control you know yeah. from God which I mean I think that's something to where my, what is most freeing I think goes into this is it's self-confirmed by the deepening of your faith so like one thing that my my dad would always say um, would say that he our our faith our personal understanding of God um, can never surpass our understanding of how much God loves us so the the more we are capable of, of understanding just how much grace has afforded us the deeper our faith can actually go because it's it's that uh, you know it's peeling back the layers it's looking more and more at man I'm, I'm I'm pretty messed up. And of course, all of humanity is really messed up. But we're still saved by grace. Exactly. So you would say an aspect of God that is intimidating is also freeing at the same time? Yeah, and I think for for many people outside of the faith, I think that might be a non-starter for them as well. Because it's it's you have to think of it, you know. You are... Um, coming to the altar you're you're acknowledging everything that it is about you has left you insufficient of any possibility of you being justified whether whether you know in the biblical sense or in a um, philosophical um, or eth- ethic ethical sense of, of the word you're you're acknowledging that you are um, broken I think that's uh, an excellent answer. Um, so let's go back to basically the the church and how it deals with mental health. Yeah. So obviously there's the big self-care movement going on right now. Right. Um, I don't think churches have done a great job addressing this. And when they do address it, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's the right answer. So okay. the question I'm going to ask you is... Is the self-care mental health movement helpful for Christians or is it simply endorsing like self-serving behaviors and prioritizing yourself under the guise of mental health? Um, so I think that, uh, well, let, let, let's start here. Define self-care for me. Um, well, in this, I've, I think there is some validity to the self-care movement, but part of it is you need to take care of yourself because if you are not, if you don't have your ducks in a row, you can't necessarily have other ducks in a row. Sure. But also, um, maybe like take time off for yourself. If you need a mental health day, take a mental health day. Right. Uh, if you want to eat, you know, 
what most people would consider junk food, eat the junk food. Yep. Um, you know, things like that. So, something where I think eventually does cross a line into being self-serving and you're not really denying yourself. But also I think there's some validity to it as far as, you know, if I'm not at my best, I don't feel like I could help somebody else. Right. They're not at their best. Right. But also I see many examples of people in in the Bible that are not at their best at all and still give their entire life to help people that are also not in their best. Yeah, Paul, Paul is getting beaten to smithereens and out there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, he was definitely not at his best physically, but he was still putting everything on the line. Well, he wasn't best at best as his, at he wasn't the, at his best physically per se because he had been beaten to a pulp multiple times. But um, you know, we have to give we have to give credit to the time span between those events happening from him traveling nation to nation. And we also have to give credit to the amount of affirmation he gives to the believers and the churches that he seeds. He also traveled with Luke, who is a physician. Which helps. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That does help. But so, but I mean, there's, there's things there. I mean, he, he references several times that um, he wishes to re- rejoin um, this church or he, he can't wait to see these people again because of how much they revitalize him and, and um, restore him. Um, I think there's a, uh, there's a false dichotomy when it comes to the idea of self-care in the church. So what a lot of people look at self-care, they, they look at self-aggrandizing or um, selfish type of behavior where they put their priorities of themselves before they can outreach to other people. Um, I would say that that is, you know, as, as, as destructive as pouring yourself entirely to somebody else. Because, I mean, there's more than enough evidence in the Bible of what pride can do to a man. Um, But, you know, living a selfish life is so directionless because it's me, myself, and I and can lead you down a path of, you know, um, being, I mean, really spiritually or relationally alone eventually. Now, self-care in its truer sense, and and I think really in its biblical sense, it's it's something that you know some people would um, I've heard this plenty of times where they would call it soul care. Um, I mean, I'm not as big a fan of that solely based on the fact that that can limit one's ability to recognize when they need to take care of themselves. And in reality, um, and this is going to be a controversial statement, but when you only preface it with soul care. I think it can be very easy for you to find yourself in a pursuit and relationship with little G God versus capital G God. Meaning that you're trying to find an emotional sustenance and um, you're really only relying on your faith for that as opposed to the entirety of this um, great relationship we have that's supposed to give us eternal joy through our hardships, through our struggles. Um, and uh, give us a sense of purpose and so many things beyond that emotional uh, well-being that I think some people can get caught up on as far as like, um, oh, I really haven't felt God's presence so long. Well, why is that? Because I really haven't had a mountaintop experience with my faith in X amount of years. Like, well, that's unfortunate for you. 
because of course we have those seasons where that does happen and you know they're very satisfying they can be fulfilling but that is not the definition of our faith you know that that kind of puts our relationship with god into a box yeah and uh when the Bible, you know, says you're weary or tired, mm. he doesn't tell you to to run to the fridge and take some time off, you know, and chill out and watch Netflix. Make sure you take care of yourself. He tells you to run to him, pray to him. Uh, he gives you rest. Yeah, so he gives you rest, and I think it's something to where it's the recognition of how we define worship. You know, for some people. It's, it's, a, it's a quiet space where they and just recollect their thoughts. You know, for some people, it's prayer and just being in a place of praise and worship to their Holy Father that revitalizes them. For some people, it's, you know, doing, doing something that um, helps them feel better physically. Knowing what we, what, going back to those two verses, I would say that all of those would be serving the greater purpose of, of obeying God because you are... I mean, think of it this way: you, you're basically um, putting a new paint job on the on the, your own temple, on the temple of God, which is your body. So, of course, how you feel physically is going to translate mentally. Um, you know, giving yourself space to where you can um, regenerate yourself mentally, so you're not overwhelmed or stressed out or anxious. You know, there's plenty of verses where it says, that, you know, we're not to worry. Jesus says we shouldn't worry. We should re- we should abide in Him, and. Um, looking at superstars like Paul can really put ourselves in a place of shame from that because we're like, well, I didn't start a church today. I didn't reach 50 people, tell them about Jesus. Well, I'm really slacking. I should really pick up the slack. <laughs> should really start getting going. Like, yeah, well, I mean, that, that's all good and fine. But, uh, you know, when's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you gave yourself a, a, a honest second to really contemplate your your relationship with God in such a way that wasn't based on your actions, but really based on the fact that grace abides and that Jesus loves you. So would you say that our soul and our mental health are inherently intertwined, or would you separate the two? And if our soul is well, our mental health is not necessarily well. So I'm not a dualist. Okay. I don't, I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's a separation. Now, as far as our salvation is concerned and everything goes, yeah, I'm not going to argue that. You know, um, our, our spirit goes on, our flesh dies. Right. Um, but while we're in this process of living in the body and, you know, wrestling with our flesh and, you know, trying to die to ourselves every day and pick up our cross, you know, those are the, to me, and I'll allow you to check me on this because you are more um, scripturally adept than I am. But to me, the mind is really the battleground. I mean, Joyce Meyer wrote a book about that. But I, not to plug that's it. a that's a bad word in this in this podcast, Joyce Meyer. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just, just it, it played itself, but um, <laughs> but it's I think it's true because so honestly, that was her best book. So yeah, well, that's fine. I didn't read it, but um, it's 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 really kind of the, the middle ground. Cause I mean, physically we understand entirely that our, our emotions, our, our actions, our decisions can absolutely be dictated by how we're feeling at any given moment. 
where we feel spiritually and where we are grounded in our in our hope and faith can absolutely dictate our actions and thoughts. Yes. So it it to me there's there's less of a degree of separation and just, you know, one feeds into another. So the I separate the soul and the spirit because the Bible mm-hmm. is sharper than two any two any two-edged sword and can separate the soul and the spirit. It's the only thing that can do that. Right. Essentially. But I 100% agree with you that our soul is intertwined with our mind. And the reason I think that is because I picture our mind as the, basically what facilitates the illustration of what's going on in the rest of our soul, basically. Um, so it's like, it's almost like the movie theater that films everything that your soul is basically spewing out and taking in. Right. And that's where it's all happening is in your mind. And that's where you see it. Like emotions and stuff, that's that's built into your amygdala. Yep. You got your parietal lobes that are involved in how you think and how you interact. And you got your prefrontal cortex that helps you make decisions and rationalize. That's right. But really, uh, you have this, your brain... I say, but really, your brain um, basically is doing all of these things all at time, all uh, all at the same time. Right. But also showing you, like, when Paul says, "Take every thought captive," he's not he's not joking. Right. He's telling you to wage war in your mind, because if you're if you are spiritually dead, your soul is going to basically reap that. And it's going to display in your mind and how you think and how you talk to others. And your mind is also wrestling with your stony heart mm-hmm. that is basically vitriolic and venomous. And it's also infiltrating your mind. And all of that together, especially with the knowledge of the world, and you're grappling with the truth and wrestling with the idea of God to begin with, if you're not saved, all of that's going on up here, up in the brain. Do you know what's ironic? What's ironic? You mentioned the two-edged, you the double-edged sword. Do you know what the verses are right before that? Huh. All right. So it's Hebrews uh, 4, 9 through uh, 11 for those who are wondering. But it says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Boy, is that relevant. Boy, is that right on the point. (laughs) But it continues. Let's not forget the second part of that. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to that same example of disobedience. We 100% can be caught up in our mission and and just expose ourselves to to demonic attack or mental anguish or physical pains by trying to be better than ourselves. And that's where I think a certain degree of self-care is warranted because you can charge head on like a bull in the China shop. Right. Thinking you're doing the mission and you probably, a a lot of the the fruits that you're laboring over, they're probably getting sowed right there. Right. But also you're, you're losing yourself almost. It's, Um, it's intentionality. It is. You, cause what you're, the constant process of sanctification is intentionally looking at the areas that need to be filed down or need to be sanded or need to be, um, maybe chipped off of the things that, um, the Holy Spirit is convicting you or showing you that need to be, uh, refined, right? In the, in the same process, you need to be, you, you better believe you better be on your game. 
because if we're in a process of refining where it's a difficult struggle to start putting parts of our past selves to death, um, there's really no better playground for, you know, than Satan during that period. Exactly. I actually agree with that. Absolutely need to know what's going on physically, mentally, and spiritually. So the intentionality that comes with that, you also need to be able to afford yourself the space to say, I can't go any farther and that's okay. It's, it's essentially guarding your heart. That's exactly right. That's what self-care is. Um, I want to dive in deeper into uh, a very debated topic about, uh, it's basically soteriology, okay. which is basically the study of salvation for our listeners who don't know. Fun. Um, but we're going to take it from a psychological bent. Um, and I'm going to base this question off some of Sam Harris's ideas about uh, free will, basically. He doesn't believe in free will. Okay. Um, I think his argument, if you add God in there, is very, very persuasive. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you, since we're going to talk about what Derek believes. Are people solely a product of their choices and will, or are there external stimuli that influence our life subliminally and subconsciously that affect our judgment when making a decision? Do we even have free agency at all? All right. Let me pull it up. Cause you uh, texted me this, and it's a long question, so I want to make sure I get every point. Uh, yes and yes. Um. So I don't know what Sam Harris would say. Uh, I, I haven't heard his. Well, his idea is if you are so influenced by external stimuli and mm-hmm. even internal ones from how you grapple with the external ones, there is no free will. You are, because of the, those stimuli, you, will, you are programmed, in a sense, for lack of a better term, to make certain choices. And it's not a truly free will. So he, I would say... Uh, I would say he's half right. Uh, of course, I'm not going to try to go toe-to-toe intellectually with Sam Harris. I imagine he probably has a bigger brain than me. I'll go ahead and grant that. That's fine. But at least from a psychological point of view, what we know um, from how the body copes with trauma, uh, it's it's not too far off. However, the I, I think that to make the far reach to say we don't have any free will at all is... Uh, it doesn't really afford anything because I mean, that's, it's very, very, very easily uh, discountable. So just based off of relevant statistics, like, I mean, granted, we don't know like the entirety of, of everybody's life and every minutia going on. Um, but as far as broad considerations go, uh, we can determine uh, different factors that might happen based off of somebody's childhood development. Um, so I'm going to probably go on a, on a pretty big tangent as far as how we react to external stimuli, um, how they would affect our life subliminally or subconsciously. I would say subconsciously. Um, however, the subliminal piece would play into the development of cognitive distortions and what may be considered, um, 
covert traumas. Can you explain cognitive distortions? Yeah, so I'm going to be going into all that. Uh, so cognitive distortions are basically the uh, the filters that one person puts on their perception of the things around them in order to disprove something that would um, uh, and otherwise maybe put them in a compromising situation. So like a like a big one is like black and white thinking, or um, so it's like everything in entirety is either this or that. Therefore, I'm never going to go do this because I know that that is death, essentially. So I'm just going to do that. And what that might be is just staying in my room until I rot. Um, you know, there is um, over-exaggeration, you know, to the nth degree where, um, okay, this little hiccup that might have happened means that the entire world is just, you know, is about to end. Um, and of course, I'm exaggerating for brevity, but, you know, for some people who deal with extreme anxiety, um, these, these are things that their thought process goes through on a daily basis. Um, so that, that would be two, uh, two, at least two examples of cognitive distortions. I mean, as far as what most of the community would look at, um, I think there's like 11 or 12 just readily accessible ones where it's like, oh, yeah, these are the most common ones that people do, you know, at any given point in time if they're struggling with, uh, uh, you know, depression or anxiety. So I need to back up a little bit and say um, external stimuli, uh, you really have to understand, you really have to understand trauma. And going back to the entirety of, uh, of this discussion, I really want to kind of give a, a church answer for what trauma is. So I think a lot of people have different thoughts of it, um, but I don't think they think of it in a broad enough sense. And I think that can oftentimes discount why people react in a certain way, how people carry themselves with certain demeanors, or how behaviors begin to develop. Um, so from a, I think from a, like a, uh, a Christian perspective, um, I've kind of labeled it as such, whereas um, think, of, think of trauma as not necessarily a sin against God, but a sin against your brother, a sin against a loved one. Some, something so like a, a wrong or something less than, you know, something that doesn't hit the mark, which I think is perfect, against somebody around you. Now, if your first thought is like, wow, that's super broad, yeah, that should be able to give you at least a taste of the extent of living in a fallen world because people carry their perceptions and will um, develop different cognitions based off of their interactions with people on very, very, very small things. So a, like a, a big example of that where it's like, okay, nobody would deny that, um, guy coming, coming back from combat, you know, his whole platoon got blown up or whatever. Um, obviously, you know, this guy's going to probably have flashbacks. He's going to, you know, um, be very wary in any crowded situation. He might sit in the corner because he needs to do, uh, for his own sake, he needs to do several, uh, there's a technical term for it, I can't remember what it is, but essentially security checks of his environment. And it's a whole lot safer to do that when sitting in a corner. Um, so that would be a state of hypervigilance, right? So that's one example of, of a reaction developed from a, um, a heavy or large traumatic event. Uh, 
Now, if you imagine, let's scale that down to um, something as innocuous that's, you know, again, nobody would immediately recognize. So something as innocuous of, um, okay, you uh, get home from school and nobody's there. And nobody's there. And nobody's there. Nobody's ever there. Over time, that can absolutely start to develop similar symptoms or similar uh, presentations. Because now you have the idea of, okay, people aren't as reliable as I thought. Why? Because the people that were supposed to be closest to me, they were never really around. They never really showed that they cared. Um, you know, attachments don't form as easily now because um, I can't really trust someone to ever stick around. Or worse yet, they're going to leave anyway. And through that thought, you find yourself in a place where um, there's no there's no grounds to establish any type of relationship because it's already finite. Because you've already decided it's finite. So if you can imagine um, those two extre- those two extreme examples on maybe like something to where it's yes, obviously recognizable to something to where it's like, you know, that that just sounds like a kid growing up in a single parent situation, or you know, both both parents work late shifts or something like that. Um, just because it's normal to society doesn't mean it's adaptable or acceptable for a child's psyche. And that's what's important because it can be very difficult to determine what you're doing could possibly have a, um, a maladaptive effect to a child. That's why um, the, as far as what we know scientifically speaking, your most um, ad- you know, adaptable, uh, like most successful children are the ones that grow up in families that are the most supportive and, uh, and available to show affection and to receive emotional baggage from a child because children are emotionally just radical. They don't have the capability to regulate themselves yet. They require a parent to do that for them. Um, there are the, these are situations where a child has the, um, the proper amount of structure or the proper amount of uh, predictability where they know that, okay, dinner is at such and such time. Um, mom is going to pick me up from the bus. Um, you know, I'm going to go to bed at X amount of time. They're going to expect me to brush my teeth, whatever, right? So long as it's not curtailing their ability to express themselves, the amount of structure that you can integrate into a young child, the more likely they're going to be able to resolve traumatic experiences later on in life. The Like the less that is, the more that they're going to become overwhelmed by such experiences. Um. So I say all that to, to give you kind of a broad overview and, and as much of a crash, crash course in, in what trauma can really look like as possible. So in 2010, there was a study done called the ACEs. So that was the Adverse Childhood Experiences, right? So so much of, so much of what we look at for child psychology and really what we look at as far as... Um, I mean, almost everything. I I don't think anything can't be traced back to trauma in some 
form or fashion anymore. Um, I would, anybody that would come to me and say, it's like, oh, it's just this, I would uh, immediately say, it's like, okay, so if it's hysterical now, it's probably historical earlier. So something probably happened in one capacity or another. Um, But the adverse childhood experience study uh, took, oh gosh, I can't remember how many, I think a couple hundred children or something like that from various, uh, from various family systems, um, you know, from ones that were broken or dysfunctional to, I think ones that weren't from the beginning, but turned abusive later on to, um, a lot of different things. And they tracked them over the years. And then in the, at the end of the study, they also, um, surveyed, um, people the same age and looked for these similar markers to see if stuff was going on. And what they determined is, depending on your ACE score, um, I would have to look it up. I don't remember exactly, but um, I remember the number being very small. I think it's like seven. So if you had like seven adverse childhood experiences, your po- your uh, chance of developing like heart disease was like 25 times more likely, something Jeez. like that just because of the stress that your life endured throughout. And these are like 35, 40 year olds when the study was done and when they surveyed people at the same age. Um, the likelihood of addictions was up by like 18% or, or like 18 fold or something like that. Not percent. It was 18 times more likely. Um, the, just all of these, all of these health conditions, all of these proclivities to mental disorders, uh, your likelihood of SES establishment later in life, which is socioeconomic status, meaning that you are likely to maybe be successful going to college or finding a trade or something like that to where you can be considered middle-class or above, um, or be stuck in poverty or worse, homeless. Um, based off of these childhood experiences, it was very, uh, they were able to determine that it's pretty trackable what's going to happen in somebody's life based off of their child development. So as far as our response to external stimuli, um, I mean, I'm inclined to agree to an extent. Um, Because what we also know, and this is where, you know, my profession would come in or or at least, you know, just everything, um, let me read the second part of your question. Did you want to add anything before I? No. Okay. Is this boring you? No. Okay. Almost, <laughs> almost cut steep whenever you were talking about uh, if whenever someone comes home and there's no one there, and there's nobody there, and there's never anyone there. So I was like, uh, yeah. That's so how I felt in high school. And here's and here's here's the thing too. Um, when you look at the when you look at the ACEs study. When you, when you look at the, the, the real theory and models behind what trauma is and how it interacts with our brain and how those neurochemicals fire and how they create physiological responses and how very likely it is people will, and I would say likely, not determined, catch that, how likely it is that people will react in a certain way to try to alleviate the, the psychic, meaning their brain, the neurological pain, um, psychological pain of whatever's happening, or in some cases, the, the physical pain, because maybe something happened during that time, um, is profound. So it's, it, it, it transformed how we looked at addictions, like, oh, like entirely. Um, 
And I mean, like these are these are as far as how it applied towards addiction specifically. I mean, that research has existed um, for like thirty five plus years. But as far as how we look more into childhood, um, the ACEs study really kind of took that and ran with it. Um, now, as far as the the second part, or should I say the first part, it's like, are we sole products of um, our choices and, and will? Um, what we know and what we know is very effective. Um, and again, this is kind of why it's my buzzword. Um, buzzword meaning uh, in intentional, intentionality is when, when you look at the, the interventions that exist, when you look at the therapies that exist, um, they're all very effective. Uh, if caught early enough, you can reverse practically all of it. Um, if, ca if caught in like adulthood or something like that, you know, you can start radically transforming somebody's um, ability to um, almost regain agency, if I, if I can be so bold to say such. Because if you imagine somebody lived such an extremely traumatic life throughout their childhood or adolescence or whatever, they're, depending on how dysregulated their body may be, th their core tenets of rationality doesn't exist because the only thing that is online in their brain is the part of their brain that is fight or flight. So the higher functions of, their, of anything else going on is, how do I turn this off? How do I get away? What's going on? Everything is fire alarm. Every, everything's online. The, you like you, they snap judgments and decisions that you make just constantly because of how your um, neurochemistry and just how messed up your brain is during those moments or can limit your options of what you're going to do. So that's why, you know, somebody might, somebody might have the proclivity to, to jump into, you know, heroin or some other type of maladaptive um, action to try to cope or heal a pain that they haven't been able to find a proper um, means to uh, alleviate. So they self-medicate. And that can come out in so many different ways. What's powerful, um, and I think probably will lead into your next question, is how reversible this is and how much we know can, can be turned. So you can turn the tide on that, and through... Um, proper therapeutic interventions and through uh, really dedicated and intentional trauma therapy, um, you can assist somebody to bringing the higher parts of their brain back online to such a degree to where um, they absolutely can start making more decisions than they otherwise wouldn't be. Because to them, um, those other decisions that they couldn't process before just didn't exist because everything was streamlined to survival or mitigating pain. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Um, so <coughs> when it comes to let's, I guess in terms of mitigating pain, uh, let's talk about your eschatology. Um, and then would you say that do certain eschatologies breed anxiety more than others um i mean i suppose like i would i would have less of an opinion on that just i don't know i'm not i've never been one to look at the end times 
Well, I have. I know you have. <laughs> you. That's a question for you, man, because that is I, my that is answer your is yes, absolutely. I do think there are certain uh, eschatology that does breed anxiety. Sure, being a partial preterist, which that simp- uh, being a preterist means that. I think almost everything in the Bible has already happened as far as end times. Yeah. Uh, and eschatology, for our listeners who don't know, is the study of end times. Um, being a partial preterist is a lot of what's talked about in Daniel and Revelations and a lot of that stuff has already happened. Some of it has not happened yet. Yeah. Um, but I didn't used to be a partial preterist. So, I, I mean, I grew up in Word of Faith. And their theology, at, when it came to the end times, was basically left the Left Behind series. Right. Um, and I think that the idea of a great tribulation, um, I think that's what give what gives me the most anxiety because I have this irrational fear of torture. So you're not a pre-trib and, and guy. Being persecuted. What's that? So you're not a pre-trib guy. Uh, I'm not. I am. Uh, well. I guess I wouldn't even fit with your being a post millennialist. No, I'm not a fit. I'm not a pre-trib and being a partial preterist. Yeah, uh, there are many partial preterists that believe that the Great Tribulation has already happened. Emperor oh. Emperor Nero was the Antichrist. Basically, there's a there's this thing called Gematria, uh-huh. which is like this Hebrew alphanumeric coding. So if you did six hundred sixty six, that basically uh, it's it's where they replaced letters with numbers. Yeah. If you did six hundred sixty six, it would spell out Nero Kaiser, which would be Emperor Nero or Nero Caesar. Sure. Um, Is that what they said about Ronald Reagan? I I don't know. <laughs> I remember when Obama was about to get elected. I went to this Bible study, and the guy couldn't help himself. I think it's like every other president, because I think they said the same yeah. about Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. I. I don't know. I I do think there's a lot of legitimacy when it comes to that type of stuff. But as far as like does eschatology, certain eschatologies breed anxiety. My answer would be yes, sure. like a resounding yes, because yeah. it was me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm. If this were statistics, this would be a, a coverage error because I certainly don't represent the rest of the population. Yeah, I don't know if this was a. I don't know why I think this might be a Baptist thing because I don't think it is. But all I or no really know, and the only really thing that any time ever would come up would be, um, like the debate. It's like, oh, are you pre-trib or post-trib? Yeah, and like that's it. Like literally nothing else. So I, I don't know. Well, the good thing about growing up in the Word of Faith is that uh, they definitely believed in uh, the Rapture. Uh huh. I grew up believing in the Rapture. Yeah. Uh, John MacArthur, he believes. Or at least, I don't know what he believes now, but I watched a sermon. It was from, like, I think seven years ago or five years ago. I can't remember, but he used a passage in Thessalonians that basically that was his grounding for the rapture, so he believes in something according to that. Um, Because it it says you're not going to be there when it happens. Right. Uh, But I think that was specifically Paul talking to the church in Thessalonica, I think. So of course, looking, <laughs> looking if if we are pre-trib people, uh, or post-trib people, then yeah, they're not going to be here because the tribulation hasn't happened yet, and so and they all died off because that was back in like seventy, eighty, or whatnot. Right. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. My answer to that is resounding, a resounding yes. yes. <laughs> um, 
So you had a couple uh, more. And did I, I don't know. Cause I kind of, I went down the rabbit hole in the last one. Did, did, did I answer your question? So your question, you answered it right at the beginning when you said yes and yes. Okay. Is external stimuli and, you know, how you cope with that external stimuli and internal stimuli, right. does that basically control your choice? Yes. Do you have free agency and free will? Yes. Right. And then you went into the nuance. So I would say you answered it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the next question we're going to do is what are some passages about God that give you a sense that he understands abnormal abnormal mental and emotional behavior? So I had to think about this. Um, I did look up a couple of passages. You did preface with God specifically, so I had to try to find a, like specific examples. Um, I mean, there are there are plenty of uh, descriptions and explanations of uh, different forms of mental illness. I feel like all Bible. of the reformers are going to come out of the woodworks and be like, uh, literally the Bible, the entire Bible is riddled with abnormal emotional and yeah. so mental behavior. Yeah. So I know that I know a lot of people don't like to. Um, I don't. I don't know. Anytime, anytime I look at a a person in the Bible, I always look at their motivations and their actions. Um, and this isn't answering a question. I just want to say that. So like Samson is probably one of my favorites to look at because people look at Samson and going back to your word before they say this, they see this arrogant, foolish man who, you know, is obviously squandering his birthright as being this chosen from God, you know, he man of a person that can just go and kill thousands of people with a donkey jaw. Yeah. But when you really kind of dig into it, um, I can't help but think he's in some state of just active rebellion from everything going on because his parents knew he was going to be Mac Daddy Samson before he was born. Yeah. And Angel literally told his mother, hey, make sure you don't do these things because Samson's going to be the guy delivering the Israelites. You had all this stuff going on. I can't imagine the amount of pressure or expectation his parents, which probably translated to his village, which probably translated to his nation, placed on a young boy being like, hey, you're going to be the guy. BT dubs, you can't cut your hair. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so like, I... I when he grows up and he's doing all these just ridiculous things and you're like, man, this guy's a bit of a jerk. I can't help but think of like, I personally have worked with so many people that were in a similar state where they were, you know, probably going to inherit this, you know, the corporation or empire, you know, the business empire of their parents or something like that, or, um, were the hero child in their family or something like that. And their only option that they could do was to try to take their own path in rebellion. That's my, I mean, that's my own two, two cents. Like there's of course, tons of other examples in the Bible. Now when it comes to mental illness specifically, um, I want to give one that I think might answer your question. Then I want to give a couple of different examples of just, you know, how different characters in the Bible, um, have been, you know, looked at and kind of put it through a mental mental health lens. So my first, like, kind of go-to as far as, like, um, God and mental illness specifically, uh, I went to King Nebuchadnezzar. So I don't know if you are familiar or remember, but 
I know, I know okay. a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Let's talk about those seven years that went by where he was uh, cursed to be with the amongst the wolves and the animals. Yes, yeah, so act cr- like one. Cursed is certainly one word. Um, so unlike King Saul, so King Saul during his period before David slayed Goliath, um, God literally put a what is it? A spirit of uh, like. Not tribulation, but, you know, just like a disturbing spirit on him. And it prefaces that, you know, and David had to come in with his harp and, you know, it was the only soothing thing for him. Right. Um, it doesn't it doesn't say that for Nebuchadnezzar. It just Daniel gives a prophecy that, hey, you're going to uh, start eating grass like an ox and you're going to start growing hair that's going to like just be so ratty. It looks like eagle's wings. And then you're, you're like your nails are going to be like eagle's claws because you're just not going to have your faculties about you. And then like he gets caught up in his own pride as he has his entire life. And he's like, isn't that interesting? And then literally the voice of God <laughs> comes out and like, hey, guess what? You're going to go eat grass like an ox and you're going to, you know, become so ratty that it looks like you have eagle's feathers and your your nails are going to be like, you know, claws of a bird. And then he does that for seven years. So I was looking it up. I should have looked it up because his reaction out of that is actually profound. But I uh, love I love when he comes out of it. Yeah. So it's Daniel. It's Jan- Daniel chapter four. Uh, it's verse thirty three when it actually happens to him. So it's like that very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Fun stuff. So <laughs> um, I say that to where, yes, um, in this particular instance, God was the one that made him go essentially insane um, or lost his mental fac- faculties for a period. But um, especially with the mental health crisis that's been going on currently, um there is a space and I would be willing to have it as far as demonic influences, but just as far as mental illness specifically, um, that's probably a majority of homeless people and, in one degree or another. So, um, you know, they, they don't have the capability of grooming themselves. Moreover, it, it doesn't, it doesn't come to their mind that they even need to do so. So, and they're, cognition is non-existent so it's basically like and i don't want to sound insensitive but just as far as describing it it's almost as if they're an animal because mentally there's just so much going on that's been untreated Woo. yeah um so as far as like a direct example where you know i to go to your specific question, does God acknowledge abnormal behavior or mental illness? That's probably the best example I could come up with. Now, as far as uh, mental illness descriptions throughout the Bible, there's tons. Um, Do you think that he understands? Well, he's God. <laughs> right. <laughs> Are there any passages that you think you can give that show that God sympathizes and understands mental illness uh so that my it would probably be one of my other examples which would be jonah chapter four okay so if we can remember back to jonah uh jonah tried to go as far as he could from nineveh 
but it's more to that. Chapter four is really the meat and potatoes of that whole book because you really get to see why he was trying to run away. Yeah, he thought it was going to be dangerous. Yeah, he thought they were a bunch of heathens. But in reality, his anger and rage towards those people was so powerful. So powerful. He was willing to defy God because yeah. of how angry if he you, was. If you were to take a map and look at where he was, yeah. where Nineveh was, it was like he picked the farthest point on the map, which was like 2,000 miles away, yes. and was like, I'm not, my brother says this whenever he preached on uh, Jonah one time, he was like, Jonah didn't just say no, he said bleep no, yeah, because <laughs> he went all the way to Tarsus, That's right. was trying to go all the way to Tarsus, which right. was literally the map that they had. Probably was like right at the edge. They didn't know anything else that existed beyond that. Yeah. So I want to, and I want to, I want to preface that. Actually, I'll look it up while I'm explaining myself. Um, so that level of anger, we're not talking about an elicited emotional response. That's somebody that's consumed. That in itself, rage, rage is a is a mental health issue. When you were caught up in it so much to where you were so reactive and you were so elicited to be directed by that emotion, it's it's no longer just frustration or anything else like that. That's control. You are caught in that. That is captivity. Um, so I only need to say what he says. Maybe you remember. God puts it in such a uh, an eloquent way when he approaches Jonah in chapter 4. He says, uh, oh, yeah, he says, does your anger do you well? I love that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then he he doesn't immediately uh, try to rebuke Jonah. He doesn't, you know, try to do anything else like that. He lets him stew in a little bit because there's a lesson to be learned there. And, you know, Jonah's probably too peeved anyways to even listen to God at that point. Probably. Which, again... I honestly think about that. <laughs> I honestly think about after Nineveh r- repented and Jonah was sitting right. there in his anger and frustration waiting for them to just be blasted off the earth. Sure. And God's like, Are you you still can sit there and s- stew. I'm going to give you this plant so it can be shade while you watch nothing happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, that is an OG move. And I mean, you have to consider the whole the whole of it. God is so patient yeah. with Jonah. And of course he doesn't have to be, but he is. To a point to where he allows Jonah to, and of course we'll, we never know because that's subtext, but he gives Jonah a full day to sit in that. And he, he asks him a question and then he follows it up with the same question. And then he, he goes into why he did what he did. You know, basically giving him like a rhetorical follow-up where it's like, does your anger really amount to the lives and livelihoods of 12,000 people Yeah, versus you? And then just kind of drops a mic. Yep. He's He's also subliminally showing like, you're sitting here angry because these people actually repented. (laughs) Yeah. You'd yeah. rather them not repent right. and watch them die. And yeah. what does that say about you? That's exactly right. And that's where, um, I mean, like the, the token thing is to look at like anger management and that or, or something like that. But 
anger, anger is a reactive emotion. It's a secondary emotion. Anger covers up so many other things. It covers up pain. It covers up fear. Um, you know, it covers up sadness because anger of, of any other emotion, it's the only one that really drives us and gives us power and gives us a sense of, um, gives us more of a sense of strength than really any other emotion. So, I mean, in so many cases, like people who are, who are deeply depressed, they, they don't present as such because they find themselves using anger as a, as a cover-up. So it's almost like their addiction is anger. Um, it does. It gives you. That's why Twitter is so bad. Sure. Most of the time, because it's this constant dopamine hit yep. and frustration, and anger. Some somebody said something in two hundred some odd characters that just really pissed me off, and now I'm gonna write in my two hundred characters why they're wrong and stupid, and you just see the worst of people on Twitter. Right. So I mean, as far as God the Father is concerned, like. As far as abnormal behavior would be concerned, uh, I would go to Nebuchadnezzar. And then, <laughs> as far as as far as actually having a like a one on one with somebody who is obviously trapped by something that is m- like mentally fueled, I mean Jonah. I mean you you can look at Job. Um, in my own limitation, I would say I'm less read up on Job. I mean, one, it's a longer book, but too it was kind of the redheaded stepchild of the bible for me for a long time because it does deal with so much anguish it does deal with so much loss and pain um and it is it can be a really hard one to swallow but in that entire time you know god never leaves and god and job do have several really good conversations and you know it is one to where um it's it's almost reassuring because he stays constant. So, I mean, just as far as grieving and any pain or be concerned, of course you can look at Job as well. And then my other example, which, you know, wouldn't necessarily be one with actual, you know, God being involved, but, you know, half of Psalms. <laughs> All of Psalms? <laughs> Most people will probably read David and be like, ah, I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist, but this seems straight up like bipolar disorder to me. So, well, the, the beauty of it is, is that the medium that it's in, it really allows you to see more areas of him than really any other place in the Bible. Yeah. So you like, maybe you can make that claim for Solomon for like, um, Ecclesiastes and like Proverbs and such. Uh, but even still, because I mean, honestly, I think Solomon was depressed very clearly. Uh, during Ecclesiastes, yeah, yeah, I think he was pretty. I obviously. think he was. I think he was coming to the end of it. <laughs> He's I like, think he knew it. <laughs> I mean, he was he was basically flipping tables in frustration. He's like, I got everything and it still sucks. <laughs> what did he say? He said something along the lines of, "To know everything is grief." Yeah, it's all vanity. Yeah. It's all vanity. But he was so wise that his wisdom (laughs) caused him great mental anguish, especially towards the end of his, and towards, you know, the time when he was writing Ecclesiastes. Yeah. It's my favorite Old Testament book. Yeah. Well, (laughs) those two books are phenomenal. But, uh, but I'm like, so you have, um, 
the, there's tons. So there's tons of Psalms that you look at and be like, yeah, that's anxiety or yeah, that's this. But, um, for like a shot for shot, um, example. So Psalms 102 basically walks you through the diagnostic criteria of depression, like shot for shot or like, wow, David's really, really hurting in this one. I mean, it's, it's almost wild. So, but so, I mean, there's, there's tons of examples of that throughout the Bible. So, uh, this question is, uh, basically, what made you go into psychology? Um, it's a long story. Uh, I think, I think what it was, was, uh, after such a long time of searching, trying to find um, a deeper sense of purpose in a lot of different things and really kind of coming up empty in so many of them. I found myself in a place that was, that was um, really transformational and um, deeply fulfilling for me. So it was after so many years of, you know, just kind of frustration and listlessness as a young adult, um, really kind of like 18 through 21, I didn't have a clue and was really biding time. Um, and, you know, was almost kind of counting my days in a sense, just because I was like, there's not anything. But I found myself working at a um, summer camp and through that experience, um, I found myself you know, not really finding any type of connection or um, interaction with the campers themselves, which is ironic because that was our primary responsibility was to like, you know, interact with the campers. <laughs> but um, my, my driving force and really got what got me up in the morning and kept me going was the kind of processing through the, the hardships and struggles of, you know, my coworkers and other people that were there. And really allowing a space for them to um, give, I guess, give themselves permission to move forward. Because, I mean, that's what, that's what therapy is in so many different senses. Like, I'm not a magician, you know. Mateos calls me a witch doctor all the time, but I don't do anything that's magical. Really what my, my role is is to provide a constant reflective environment of support where somebody can um, find themselves in a place of, of epiphany and through those epiphany come uh, transformation because they're given the, the space and support to do so. So I found myself in basically a, a, a layman sense doing something very similar with, um, you know, these other counselors and stuff like that, that, you know, we're college kids, and it's like, this is great. I mean, the fact that it was a, a Christian camp, too, made it even more, because it was, like, it was very affirming to my faith, but it was also something that kind of drove me, and it kind of defined my 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 marching call mission statement or, or something else that um, I have carried with me, and I, I think it's evolved a little bit, but, I mean, essentially, it's... I, I like 
and I want to be a positive healing force in somebody's life where they can be able to navigate and overcome their struggles in a means where they can eventually thrive in their life. Now, I have to always go back to what my father said, and I think it's so true, especially in my current position, um, which is, you know, Jesus is the one that ultimately heals. But I count myself very privileged and um, fortunate to be in a space where I can elicit that in a small degree and point them back to the true light. And especially where I'm working now, which is a, it's a Christian um, nonprofit that does, that does counseling and it's a residential. There's something, there's something very powerful and uplifting for me to be able to lead a process group where, we, where people are talking about their deepest traumas, talking, to their, talking about their deepest pains, and begin and end that group in prayer. It's wild. And I, I, don't, think I, would, I don't think I would want to be anywhere else. Wow, amazing. That's why uh, you are perfect to answer these questions. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly imperfect. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's all we got for today. This has been Theology on Tap with Christian Lunday and our co-host, Derek Sesum. Co-host in crime. Oh, yeah. We commit <laughs> lots of crime. Just don't turn us in yet. Uh, Thanks for listening. See you back next week.